Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Um, if you guys would just bow your heads with me once more before we dive into John 11. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life-giving power um, that we get to stop and consider in detail uh, during this Easter season. Lord, uh, praise God that our preaching of the gospel is not confined to a two-week window in the calendar, but we preach Christ and him crucified every Sunday until you come to take us home. But Lord, in this time of uh, unique remembrance, we ask that you accomplish what your word has set forth to do in your people, both in Missoula and across the globe, for your glory and for the salvation of those who are lost and for the encouragement of the believer. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So, Welcome, everyone, again to Holy Week. Uh, today we gather on what's traditionally called Palm Sunday, the day which uh, fulfilled the prophecy we read earlier today in Zechariah, where Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem a handful of days before his crucifixion. Uh, this coming Friday, you can join us here in the library at 5.30 for Good Friday, where we sit in kind of the somber weight of the cross of Christ. And then we have the wonderful joy of coming back together next Sunday on the day death died on Resurrection Sunday to stand in awe of the gospel. In the light of this, we're hitting the pause button for a couple of weeks in our series through Proverbs, and we are going to be looking at the gospel of John, specifically some of the kind of off-Broadway pieces of the Easter story. In other words, we're not going to camp out at length on the typical kind of Easter tales, uh, but instead we're going to look at the events surrounding those typical things like the crucifixion and the resurrection. Because actually in looking at these smaller events, it helps us to see more clearly the wonder of the main events of the Easter story. And that's because the book of John is a book written, if you read through it, you hear a constant uh, reminder and constant rhythm from the Apostle John, we saw it today, that you might believe, and specifically, what we'll also see today in John chapter 8, that you might believe and that you might abide enduringly in Jesus, that your belief produces an abiding, abiding endurance in who Jesus is. And that really is a key theme because the book of John, the gospel of John, is kind of divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 10 deals almost exclusively with Jesus' ministry with outsiders, with crowds, with Pharisees, with John um, the Baptist and his disciples. And what you see during this public ministry is you see people coming to Jesus left and right. But what's unique is that those who come to Jesus and believe in him become increasingly discontent with who Jesus is. Jesus becomes more and more like the Messiah, the Bible itself said would come, which is actually less and less like the Jesus who the Jews thought they needed. 
And because of that, many of the people who believed in Jesus fell away. And there's a really interesting scene in John chapter 8. And what happens is leading up into this, we see three times in the previous verses that Jesus is about to speak in contrast to those who did not believe to the Jews who did believe in Jesus. And what Jesus is going to say is part winsome, part optimistic, but part challenging. And yet this is a watershed moment in the book of John. Look with me at John 8 verses 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so Jesus, again, speaking, we see it right there, speaking to the Jews who had believed in him. And he begins to give this nature of what life looks like to believe in Jesus. You abide in him. You submit yourself to his word. You experience in that submission, in that faith, immense freedom. This sounds like great news to those who believed. And yet, in a few short paragraphs, these Jews are going to ask some questions to Jesus about what he means. And at the end those same Jews who had believed picked up stones to throw and kill Jesus with. That's a big transition. That's not the kind of belief if I were wanting to be a Messiah, I would like to champion. (laughs) That's a belief that fell away and became hostile. And yet, in chapter 11, we see this transition where John now changes the scene a little bit. Instead of focusing on the outsiders who are around Jesus, he begins to focus on those who are the closest followers of Jesus. And what's interesting is these individuals follow Jesus in the exact same world as these others. A world filled with challenges. A world filled with doubt. A world that wrestles to understand these seemingly cataclysmic claims of Jesus. And yet... These individuals are the ones who endure. Instead of wanting to kill Jesus, by the end of this story, we see in the book of Acts men and women who are willing to be killed for Jesus. So what changed between those who believed in chapters 1 through 10 and those who believed in chapters 11 through the end of the book? Many of us have thoughts on Jesus. You're here in church. You probably came here expecting Jesus to be discussed. But are the thoughts you have on Jesus, Jesus Jesus-shaped thoughts about Jesus? How would Jesus want you to consider belief in him? How would he want you to understand him? And how might that belief in him shape your life so that you could abide in his word forever? This process that we're gonna look at in the next few weeks is to give us clarity in three ways. One, today we are gonna see what it looks like to believe in Jesus, according to Jesus. Next Sunday, we're gonna see what it looks like to follow Jesus, according to Jesus. And then the Sunday after, we're gonna look at what it looks like to live your lives for the sake of Jesus, according to Jesus. And this process starts today, not with the story of the triumphal entry, which is generally what we look at on Palm Sunday, But it actually starts with a story that precedes it, a story that I call the poorly timed entrance of Jesus. It's the day when Jesus 
seemingly showed up late, and everything fell apart. You may have heard it called the story of Lazarus, but as we'll see today, it might be better called the story of Thomas, or the story of Martha, or the story of Moses, or more importantly, the story of who Jesus is and how he loves his friends. And we are going to read this one story of Lazarus who dies and is raised again. But along the way, we're going to see three distinct interactions Jesus has with a follower. Each follower understands some truth about who Jesus is, but in their interaction also reveals that the truth is coupled with doubt. It's truth coupled with an incomplete picture about not only who Jesus is, but what this Jesus is capable of doing. And so today we're going to see these three scenes of partial belief. And this is what we're going to see. And looking at Thomas, we're going to see a Jesus who is fully true, but limited in power. And looking at Martha, we're going to see a Jesus who is fully, or excuse me, Thomas is fully true, but limited in control. With Martha, we're going to see a Jesus who is fully Lord, but limited in power. And lastly, with Mary, we'll see a Jesus who is fully our friend, but limited in love. Yet as we see these incomplete pictures, by the end of the story, when Lazarus is raised, we see a fuller picture of Jesus that helps make sense of our experience and our doubts with our Savior. And so we're going to read our opening passage today and encounter our first point. We're going to read the first 16 verses of John chapter 11. It says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, And wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you were going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has died. And for your sake, or excuse me, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, I like how they like make it sound like medical language. Like certainly if he's fallen asleep, he will recover instead of just, he's going to wake up. They're trying to sound scientific like Jesus here. Um, Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So here the table is set. We see a lot of context that's important for our story today. And the one whom Jesus loves is Lazarus. We see Jesus loving lots of people in this text, which gives us a glimpse into the heart of our Savior. And Lazarus is sick, and at some point in this narrative, he dies. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem to awaken him. That's the word we see here in the ESV. Now, 
this is something that you would think would be a cause for celebration and anticipation for the disciples. They follow Jesus, and he starts working these miracles, and you would think that now that he's perhaps hinting about some guy coming back to life, being awakened from death, that they would be excited. That these are, we've seen in John, this longing for greater things. Jesus keeps saying greater things will happen. And they're like, this could be one of those greater things. But instead, they respond with a sense of terror, a sense of anxiety and trepidation. And this is where we see our first scene of partial belief. And that is a Jesus who is fully true, who disciples want to follow, but a Jesus who is limited in control. And it's important to understand what has happened in the previous few chapters in John. And so Jesus would go into Judea, which was kind of the center point of Jewish identity. It was there where the densest population of Jews were. That's where Jerusalem was. That's where the temple was. And so Jesus would go there and he would preach in the synagogues and he would proclaim the gospel to the Jews until it got a little dicey, until they started picking up those stones, trying to kill him. And then he would flee across the Jordan River And that's where he would camp out kind of amongst the Gentiles until things cooled down with the Jews. And he had just left, at the end of chapter 10, he had just left this hostile land of Judea. And he was there for, we don't know how long, not too long across the river. But obviously, when he says he wants to go back, the disciples are like, tensions are still high there, Jesus. Do you remember the last time you were there? People tried to kill you? And now you're going straight back. Why? Why would Jesus go back? We see him take plenty of time at earlier points in the Gospel of John. Well, Jesus wants to go back because his friend Lazarus has died and he wants to help. And here we see the privilege of being a friend of Jesus. Here's Jesus separated from Lazarus, separated from Lazarus's two sisters. But because of his friendship and his and his. Uh, compassion for them, Jesus is willing to go into a hostile territory if only to be with and help those whom he loves. And on the one hand, we shouldn't be surprised about this. This is what we celebrate in the Advent season when the second person of the Trinity, God's son, became incarnate in Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus is always one who is willing to go to dangerous places to help those whom he loves. Jesus enters into dangerous places for those he's going to save. Jesus always lays down his life for the sake of his friends. If you've ever wondered how much Jesus loves those whom he will save, here is a glimpse of this where compassion motivates him to enter into the belly of the beast and face the stones of the Pharisees because he loves his friends. But the disciples uh, think it's great to read a book about love. It's harder to live it out. And so they see Jesus do this and say, this is a suicide mission. They're seeking to kill you and you want to go back. And Jesus gives two answers, both of which make us, because we're not in the story, laugh a little bit. The, his first answer is like, don't worry, guys. Kind of sounds like a riddle. And he's basically like, don't worry. We're going to go during the day. Everyone will see. And then he gives this second answer. He says, Lazarus is just asleep, and we're going to wake him up. So to console them, he says, I just really want to wake him up, this guy who's sleeping, and we're going to take the highways in broad daylight. You have nothing to fear. This is all worth it. 
And so not only do we see this tension in the lives of Jesus and his disciples, but look at how Jesus brings clarity to the disciples in verses 12 through 16. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to wake up. Now, the Jews had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus clarifies the reason. Lazarus isn't asleep. He's dead. And then he says, this will work out for your good. In fact, Jesus even says, I'm glad for this moment. And then Thomas speaks. I love Thomas. We're going to see Thomas later on in the Gospel of John as the Thomas who doubts that Jesus has risen from the dead. And we see in Thomas, kind of in contrast to Peter, uh, this strong belief that's coupled with doubt. And yet it's endearing because here he is always one of Jesus' disciples, always with those who have faith, always putting himself in the place of belief even though he has doubts simultaneously. And we see this in this text because he hears what Jesus says and you can imagine he's like, I guess we'll go and die too. My schedule's pretty free right now. You brought me across the Jordan. Chick-fil-A's closed on Sunday. We're just going to go back too. And if we die, we die. What else are we going to do? And here's this wonderful tension in his profession. On one hand, Thomas believes Jesus is the truth. He says, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe all the things that have made all the people want to kill you. I believe so much so this truth that I am willing to risk my life to walk down with you to wake somebody up. And yet, I don't believe you have any ability to actually save us from whatever mess we might encounter along the way. And remember, this is not unfounded. It's easy for us to read like from outside the Bible looking in like silly Thomas. But remember what Jesus opened this text with? This illness will not lead to death. And then what does Jesus just say? Lazarus is dead. Can this Jesus actually control anything? Does he have any power over the events of life that are seemingly becoming closer and closer to spiraling out of control? but how easy it is to live like Thomas in the face of hard circumstances. We become holy stoics, Christian fatalists, who see who Jesus claims to be and the claims of scripture, and we say, certainly better than the alternative worldviews I see in this world, so I'll believe it and I'll endure it. This is probably gonna be the most uncomfortable life I could ever live. It's gonna be pain at every corner but I guess I'm going to endure. It is a duty completely devoid of delight. There was no joy in Thomas's call to discipleship and in following Jesus. And that's because he doesn't understand that the one whom he follows is in sovereign control of everything. Look at these two truths that Jesus comforts him with first in his enigmatic answer in verses 9 through 10. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
And so what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's not talking about the road to Judea at all. He's talking about in walking in light of who he is as God's Messiah and God's providential plan to accomplish exactly what he set forth to do in the Messiah. Jesus knows why he was sent. Jesus is not discovering this story along with you, the reader. Jesus knows that he has come to to fulfill what Paul says in the New Testament, the fullness of time. He has mentioned multiple times in the book of John that his time has not come and that no one will take his life except he has the authority to lay it down when he pleases. Jesus knows that in going to his friend Lazarus, God's plan for him will not be frustrated or foiled by evil men. Jesus knows the safest place for him to walk is openly in the light of God's plan. Nothing can happen to Jesus outside of his father's gracious will in his life. So too for us as followers of Jesus, we trust that the safest place to walk is under the sovereign control of our gracious father. We've been looking at the book of Proverbs and seemingly the first principle in Proverbs is wisdom that the wise live But the first principle of Proverbs is actually God's sovereignty. The only way we can believe we can safely live as wise in a world which sees us as fools, as meek in a world which sin makes us violent, is if we actually understand and believe in our hearts that God has the ability to keep those who trust in him and to punish those who rebel against him. Wisdom works not because wisdom is a great principle. Wisdom works because God sovereignly rules in this world. Wisdom ticks at the pace of the God who drives all of history. To deny God's sovereignty is to live a white-knuckled life of discipleship with no joy and no peace. But more than that, we see this second truth in verse 14, where Jesus says this, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Even when things do seemingly go awry, like in the death of Lazarus, Jesus is glad for your sake, because it might lead to belief. That word glad It's just the word to rejoice. In Matthew 18, 13, that same word is used when the one sheep that left the 99 is returned and what does the shepherd do? He rejoices. There is deep joy Jesus has for the disciples in the pain of this moment because he is working it to the benefit of their belief. One winter, my car, or I was driving down Reserve Street right in front of uh, Larchmont Golf Course, and I tapped the brakes, and I, my front end of my car went to the f- back end of my car, went to the front end of my car on reserve. Not good. And so I just start spinning on Reserve Street. I don't know if you've lived in Missoula or know about Reserve Street, but there are other cars on it. And, and it happened so fast, and it seemingly took forever, that I had this like conversation with myself. I was just like, what do I do? Because I have no control over anything that's going on right now. And I just talked to myself. I said, you're, you're going to hit something. It's going to happen. Just get it out of your mind. And then I have this thing where it's like, what am I, do I, do I like 
brace myself? Do I go limp? Like, what do I do to prepare for impact? And so as I'm like, people watching this are just totally confused by everything that's happening in the car. Um, My whole life was just me preparing for impact however I thought I could brace myself. By God's grace, I just landed perfectly going the right way and everyone stopped and then I just pulled back on and went my way. But here's the thing. How many times do we spend our Christian lives in the unknown of living life in a broken world, simply bracing for impact instead of trusting the God who controls every step? Knowing that things are gonna be hard and I'm just gonna have to get through it, not believing that actually in those hard parts that God is actually glad for your sake in the midst of it. That he's accomplishing something good even in the things that are completely beyond our control. That he cares for us in hardship precisely because he wants to rejoice over us. Now admittedly, seeing God's gladness for us in times of fear and pain is often not as warming or as comforting as we would like it to be. In fact, we might actually become frustrated with God that he would choose to be glad in this way. But this is why we must understand the privilege of walking in the sovereign light of the God who controls all things. If God really does guide and guard the details of life, if God's sovereign, meticulous hand is intervening in every moment of our day, then we know his gladness for us is deeply comforting because nothing in our life is arbitrary or random. Everything in our life is given to us by the hand of the Father who desires good things for us. We see this in the story today, but we see it most clearly on the cross, where it seems God had lost the most control and his smile had faded entirely. Yet behind the darkness of Good Friday is the reality that the smiling providence of God stood towards his people in the death of even his own son. That God smiled as he vindicated his own righteousness. That God smiled as he established his son as the glorious and eternal high priest. That God smiled as redemption was made possible for all who would come to him. There is no joy or peace in life for those who believe in Jesus but refuse to trust him. But this Jesus is in absolute control for your sake that you might believe. That you might see and savor the treasure of God in the moment. What we'll see as the story goes on is that neither Thomas nor any of the disciples will die on this journey. But by the time their journey with Jesus is done, they will say not with dread or duty but with sovereign delight to live as Christ, and to die as gain. And now we transition into the second scene of partial belief. This is where Martha shows us a Jesus who is fully Lord, but limited in power. Read with me verses 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. 
Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So here we have Jesus' interaction with the first of Lazarus' sister. And in the Gospel of Luke, we read another story about Mary and Martha, where Martha is busy busying herself in the service of Jesus, and Mary is sitting in the presence of Jesus. And we see the consistency of their characters, both their strengths and their faults, also here in the Gospel of John, don't we? Martha, always the busy one, the analytical one, the anxious one, runs to Jesus with a three-part theological profession. Mary, or Martha has sound theology. She first says, Lord, She calls Jesus Lord, admitting that if he were there, her brother would not have died. Even though Jesus never made this promise to Mary or Martha that no one would die, she admits either in good faith or presumptive faith what is true. That if Jesus were there, this Lord had the power to keep Lazarus from dying. Here we see the distinction between Thomas' faith and Martha's faith. Thomas is with Jesus and doubts his power. Martha knew that if only Jesus were there, there was infinite power to keep Lazarus from dying. She also affirms, secondly, a unique nearness, a relational uniqueness between Jesus and God. That Jesus in that moment could ask of God whatever he wanted, and God would give it to him. And then when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Mary again affirms her sound seminary theology. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, the Jews believed in a resurrection from the dead. But that resurrection was a future and exclusive one-time event. There would be one button that would be pressed and everyone would rise again and there's no other resurrections that would ever happen. It was this comprehensive future event. And here Jesus says, he will rise again. And Mary says, I know, I know he'll rise again, Jesus. But we obviously see that this theological conviction brings her very little relief in the midst of her pain and lost. Jesus has not told her anything seemingly new. That's because for millennia, the Jews have been holding on to this future hope that a Messiah would come. He would establish his kingdom. There would be resurrection that the dead would raise. But nothing has happened in the course of history so far that would show that that event was fast approaching. In this sense, it was a hope deferred that made Martha's heart sick. But here Jesus intervenes in Martha's theological musing to alert her to what is standing directly in front of her. Here is the Lord, Jesus Christ. Martha was right that Jesus could ask anything from God, but at this point it hasn't yet clicked in Martha's story that this Jesus is God. Jesus will go on to say something in Matthew, which is completely blasphemous, or in John, completely blasphemous if it's not true. Look at John 14, 13 through 14. So this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So why does Martha say to Jesus, if you ask God of anything, he will do it? Because you only prayed to God. To pray to someone who is not God was blasphemous, idolatrous. And yet Jesus says, you could pray to me. Because I am God. I am the second person of the Trinity. I am Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, sent to save. And this is the wonderful reality of all theology, is that it finds its fullness and its application in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I love theology. I love the analytics and the deep thought and the philosophical aspect of thinking about how God saves a broken people and what God is going to do in the future to establish his kingdom. But our theology, which simply means the study of God, cannot distract us from the one who is God. In fact, if theology blinds us to the person of Jesus, it is no longer theology because it lacks God entirely. And here Jesus comes into Martha's mind, grappling with the world through things we should grapple with. Reflection on the scriptures. A desire for the Lord's Messiah. But Jesus places himself at the center of all of those hopes. John 11, 25 and 27. Where am I at? Sorry. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Mary has professed belief at three different times in this passage. But the biggest question has to do with who she believes Jesus to be. Do you believe this. Your brother will rise. She says, I believe that. But just like how we do when someone comes to us and comforts us with theology, even looking back to what I said about sovereignty, and you have a difficult time, you say, I believe God is sovereign, but, and Jesus gets ahead of the but. He says, no, now hope has come. Now hope is here. You don't believe this enough, for I'm about to do something wonderful. Jesus interjects and pulls the veil off of her anxious thoughts so that she might see the one who stoops down to console her. He says, dear Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, though he die, he will live. Do you believe in me? Good theology and close proximity to God's disciples is of no hope to you if you do not believe what Jesus says about himself. You can have the greatest ecclesiology, soteriology, pneumatology, whatever ology you want, but if you cannot answer this question of Jesus, then you miss it all. Because Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the power of God for all who believe. It's easy to punt our idea of life in Christ only to the future heaven, that that's where Jesus fixes us. But here, now, Jesus has come to heal in part. 
The story of Lazarus is uh, an illustration of the life that Jesus gives, not only physically, but what we see spiritually. He enlivens dead hearts. He brings us out of spiritual graves. Jesus is not just help later. Jesus is help now for the believer in the present. Jesus is exactly what you have been waiting for, the power you need for salvation. The question is, do you believe this? Do you believe in who he says he is? And if not, what's holding you back? Because what we see in our final point today is how loving and caring it is to believe in a savior like Jesus. And here we see our third scene of partial belief, a Jesus who is fully our friend, but limited in love. This is John eleven twenty-eight through 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus, to where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, which happened just a few chapters ago in the book of Mark, also have kept this man from dying? So here, Mary comes. And I love this. Because both Mary and Martha are brothers of the same dead Lazarus, lovers of the same man, Jesus. And yet Martha comes first when she is ready. And Mary comes second when she is ready. Neither was right or wrong in their coming. Why? Because they both came to Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. You're not graded on when you came and how much sin or doubt you had or didn't have when you came to Jesus. You're only graded as to when the friendly call of Jesus beckons you to come and you do. That is the offer of the gospel, that you might come and you might meet this Savior where he is. And here's what I love about Mary. She is absolutely grief-stricken. Where Martha was the analytical one, Mary is the feeler, and there's room for all of us in the gospel. And Mary meets Jesus with the exact, exact same lament as Martha, which means you know in those last four days what the sisters had been talking about, how they had been processing this trial. Man, if Jesus was here, where was our friend Jesus she doesn't offer a theological confession like Mary. She doesn't ask for anything like Mary. She falls to the ground in brokenness before Jesus, making her petition known and says nothing else. How many of us in the pain of life have cried out to God a similar cry? Lord, if you were here. Lord, if you only came on time. Lord, where are you? And what I love about Mary 
is she has all of this emotion, all of the frustration and confusion, and yet she knows enough about Jesus, enough about her friend, that she can come and leave it at his feet without further comment. She knew she was burdened. She knew she was confused. But she knew it was safe to go to Jesus with the sum of her experience and to trust him with it. So where do you go with the pain and the confusion in your own heart? Do you take it and run to Jesus? Do you try to make sense of it on your own? Do you try to wash it away with the busyness of life? Or do you go even with incomplete thoughts and a full experience of sorrow to the friend who has crossed the river for us? And yet, we have this wonderful picture where we know more than what Mary knew in this moment. Mary went to Jesus because he was her friend, but it doesn't appear Mary had any hope that Jesus would do anything but console her, but be a kind and gentle shoulder to cry on. But here, Jesus begins to act. He has hinted in every interaction he's had so far in this text that he is going to do something. The greater things of John are going to start coming to bear, and now he begins to, to act. He asks where Lazarus was, and he is brought there, and he weeps. We don't know why Jesus weeps. It is crazy to think about what causes Jesus to cry, and that's another sermon series or a theological book that you can write later. But what we know right now is this massive principle where whenever Jesus acts, it is rooted out of the center of his heart. Jesus is not emotionless in moving towards his friends. Jesus' compassion is not locked away in a closet when he was called to be born in the flesh and to live as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus comes to us. Jesus loves us. Jesus intercedes with us precisely because he cares for us. And so he cries. And the friends around Mary begin to interpret the tears of Jesus. This is what they say in verses 36, or 35 through 37. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So here some see Jesus' love, but it was a powerless love. This broken Savior who grieves, grieves like Mary, grieves like Martha, grieves like us. Because like us, he loved them. But he's nothing more than a shoulder to cry on. But then others err on the side of frustration. Maybe that's you. Frustration that says, if Jesus really loved them, why would he let Lazarus die? Man, this is a cry we hear in our world every day when you're sharing the gospel with your coworkers, when you reflect on the pain of the last year and a half. How can a loving God allow such evil things to happen? If God loves me, why do I feel this way? And we begin to tell God what his love should look like. But it's here where God tells us what his love looks like, and it is stunning. For look at the nature of Jesus' love in verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because of Jesus' love, 
he waited. Because of Jesus' love, he did nothing. What love is this? A love which waits and then weeps. Why? Because he loved his friends. But Jesus' love is not powerless. Jesus' love is not tragic. Jesus' love is a divine love, a divine love which often allows what is hard and difficult by human standards in order to produce what is miraculous and deeply comforting. Because look at what his love does. And see, you can, only, you can only be confident and comfortable with the Jesus who waits when you realize that this Jesus is the all-powerful Son of God. Again, if we do not have a sovereign God, we have no joy in this life. But look at why Jesus can wait and weep and why we should believe. Verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. That's twice now we've seen in this text that everything that is going on is for the sake of Jesus' followers. That they might believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here we see the raising of Lazarus in an astounding act of power. Jesus raised a man who is dead four days to life. He enlivened a dead heart and unstinkified a rotten corpse. And in this moment, all these themes of doubt and belief begin to give way to the reality of who Jesus is. Here in the moment of Lazarus' resurrection, Mary saw that Jesus' love is never late. That the reason we can run to Jesus, our friend, is because Jesus' love for us is a constant reminder of all he is able to do. His love has broken the curse of sin. It has stripped away the sting of death. It has won you back to God in full acceptance through faith. His love is unlimited in what it is capable of to redeem those who love him. In Lazarus' resurrection, Martha was convinced that everything she hoped for in the God of Scripture, the redemption of his people, the hope for life after death, the help for the hurting, was here finally and fully in the person of Jesus Christ. Here was life, not in theological principle, but in a divine person who entered powerfully into our needs. And here, Thomas and the disciples saw the gladness of Jesus in that they now saw that if Jesus has authority over death itself, how much more does he have authority over the events of our life? And that in the midst of them, he is worthy of joyful trust. Yet all of these were only signs. As astounding as Lazarus' resurrection was, it's not going to keep Peter from doubting. It's not going to keep Thomas from doubting. 
It's not going to simultaneously answer all of the issues they have in life. But there would be a death and resurrection that would help all the more. And it would happen in a handful of days. And that's the day when Jesus would lay down his own life for his friends and be raised not as a sign of love, but as the source of it. And it's when we see that beautiful cross where Jesus laid down his life for his friends to give us life and hope and trust abundantly. And only there do we get to see who it is who's calling us to follow him. And we get to live our lives for his glory until he takes us home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all you have shown yourself to be in history. We thank you for the eyewitness accounts of men like John who recorded and wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit not so that we would know Jesus but that we would believe in him. That our hearts would be struck by the truth of a Jesus who has full control and operated as the climax of all human history to give us the power of salvation by laying down his life and by loving us and redeeming us back from the dead. Lord, we pray that however we see Jesus, you make us abide in the beauty of this Savior. We pray all this in your name. Amen.